Before we dive into this week's episode, be sure to follow, leave a review, like Comeback Stories, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. If there was anything Donnie and I could ask of you guys, it would be to give us a five-star review and a written review. Our mission has always been to reach as many people as possible to remind them that they're not alone and that we all have a comeback story within us. And we feel like you guys can definitely help us push that message further by helping us in this way. So we appreciate you guys more than you'll ever know all the times you've supported us from the beginning of the show to this point. So uh, thank you. And let's drop in deep to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Comeback Stories. Darren Waller here with my man Donnie Starkins, as always. Love to have you here, bro. Always an honor to talk to you, be with you. Um, excited always. to have the guest that we have on today. Uh, he's an NFL veteran, but to put him in a box would be a disservice. Um, he is a two-time New York best-selling author of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man and Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Boy. He is a Fox Sports One TV analyst. Uh, sports Emmy winner, primetime Emmy winner, among many other things. So please, Emmanuel Acho to the show. Emmanuel, how you doing, man? What's up, people? Uh, D-Wall, this is a long time coming, man. We we supposed to been linked up a while back. Donnie, good to see you, man. Heard great things, have read great things, have looked up great things. Um, so it's good to rap with y'all. Yes, sir. It's a blessing to have you here. Uh, we love to dive right into the story. We want to know what it was like, life was like for you growing up. Dude, uh, growing up, the youngest of four Nigerian um, parents. So I'm in a household in Dallas, Texas, and I'm the youngest of four. And Nigerian parents is a little bit different, right? Like uh, you can't date until you get married type, right? Like Nigerian household is uh, you must be a doctor, you must be a lawyer, you must be an engineer. Like you got to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, um, but I wanted to play football. My pops is 5'9", my mom's is 5'8". Football to them was that black and white circular object that you kick on the ground. My brother ends up being 6'3", 240. He goes to a USC football camp. He runs a 4'640". Back in the heyday when Pete Carroll was there, Pete Carroll instantly offers him on the spot. Next thing you know, the Acho name became something in Texas. My brother decides to commit to the University of Texas. I then decide to commit to University of Texas. And this was back when we were in our bag, national championship uh, with Vince Young coming off the heels of that. So I go to a private school growing up, this all boys school where we had national merit scholars. And I end up being uh, the jock, if you will. Um, But growing up for me was complex because several different cultures, uh, D-Wall and identities I had to fit in. You were uh, born to Nigerian parents, but went to private school, then went to church uh, in the hood. And so it was simultaneously trying to live in these different spheres and these different spaces, but it made me who I am. I can relate to having different environments that you feel like you have to fit into. Um, I was always struggling with not being black enough when I was growing up because I went to school, hung out with predominantly white people for the most part. And when I got to sports teams, you know, just being around people where it's more of my skin color, they kind of, you know, made fun of me, cracked jokes on me and it was tough for me. And I always felt like I had to wear masks in different environments. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you had to put those masks on? And if you did, what kind of impact do you think that had on you? Man, a thousand percent, especially in college, because my football team in high school was predominantly white. Again, true story. 
um, the school I went to called St. Mark's in Dallas, Texas. For context, the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, Clark Hunt, he graduated from that school. His children graduated from that school. Just to give you all context of the caliber of financial individual that attends that school. Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, I believe his kids go there. Tony Romo, former quarterback of the Cowboys, I believe his kids go there. So just to give you all context, now mind you, my parents were trying to get me and my brother scholarships to attend the school because my parents migrated from Nigeria. So I'm at school in Dallas, super nerdy private school. Then I go to Texas and at Texas, it's all kind of inner city, country, uh, urban, all types of folks. But I'm this private school kid that really don't know nothing about nothing. So I had to figure out who I was on the fly at the University of Texas. I'm figuring out my own identity. So it was very awkward. It was very uncomfortable, if you will. But I loved it because it made me a much more well-rounded human being. Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, all those experiences, I feel like, are what allow you to radiate the energy that you radiate in culture today. And um, looking at what you do now, I, I was doing a little research on you, and it said that your your family was big into missionary work growing up. What do you, what kind of impact do you feel, feel like that had on you, and what lessons do you think you carried from that today? Man, the greatest thing that's ever been done for my life is going back to Nigeria every summer. So growing up, every summer, we would go back to the rural village of Nigeria. And for context, if you think you've seen poverty in America, the villages of Nigeria are American poverty on steroids. They are poverty of poverty. You, you wake up when the sun wakes you up and you go to sleep when it's dark outside. There ain't no natural electricity in the villages. Um, you shower in the stream, the same stream that you collect your water and carry back on a bucket on your head the same stream that you wash your motorcycles and your vehicles in. Like that's the same stream that these villagers are showering in, getting water to cook from. So every summer we would go to these rural villages of Nigeria for context for all the listeners and viewers. In Nigeria, 75% of people live off less than $1 a day, less than $1 a day. So finally, after nine years of fundraising, we build a hospital in Nigeria, like in the middle of nowhere village, we built um, a hospital in a $2 million raise. And we would go with 40 doctors and nurses and we would uh, perform cataract surgery. So blind people or people who had limited sight would regain their sight. We would remove and extract different um, aligned limbs. People would get a spider bite that might erode their arm and we would give them antibiotics. Keep in mind in Nigeria, there's not CVS. There's not Walgreens, there's not Rite Aid, there are not pharmacies, there are not places where you can do an annual checkup. And Waller, we were the annual checkup. So going back to medical mission trips in Nigeria, that literally kept me humble in the midst of trying to live out the American dream. What do you feel like for you if you go back into childhood days, Darren, I always like to ask this question. Can you tell us a, a early memory of pain that you had? Ooh, an early memory of pain. I can tell you an early memory of fear. Let me give you an early memory of fear. I was six years old. 
I was sitting in the back of a, I was five years old, because I was sitting in the back of a 1995 beat up Mercedes Benz while we were driving through the countryside of Nigerian village. Now, in a Nigerian village, the, the officers are corrupt and not just in the village, in the city. A checkpoint, an officer might pull you over and they will ask for your papers, your papers, give me a driver's license, your, your insurance, something. Really, they don't care about your papers. They want you to run them some money. You feel me? It's just one of them stops where hand me a couple couple dollars and we'll let you go. Well, my dad wasn't going to be extorted. So they stop us in the car. I'm sitting in the back seat. My mom's to my right. My brother's to my left. My brother's seven years old. I'm five years old. This little baby. They stop us. They pull my dad out of the car. My dad's like, I'm not giving you all any money. They put a gun to his head. He will shoot you now and just throw you off this cliff. I'm sitting in the back of the car like, Mommy, mommy, they really about to kill my dad. My dad's just sitting there standing there like, I'm not giving y'all any money. They threatened to shoot him. We'll just shoot you right here, right now in this thick Nigerian accent, they say. And I vividly remember like, yo, is is this what life is like? Like I was I was shook, Donnie, to my core. That was probably the earliest memory of fear. Now, thankfully, um, I think they finally just let us go, whatever the case may be. My earliest memory of pain Man, honestly, I probably wouldn't say I experienced pain like that until college. I think my earliest memory of pain came in college and it came in athletic defeat, I would say. That would be the earliest memory of pain. Can we go back? And I want to learn more about your dad because I know you've learned a lot of lessons from your dad and heard the story where he came over and was working a Taco Bell job for $3 an hour, went on to get his doctorate and PhD. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and some of the lessons you've learned from him? Man, my dad is the oldest son of, I believe, maybe eight or nine siblings. And in Nigerian culture, in African culture, the oldest son is a provider in some degree uh, uh, and in different aspects of American culture. And so my dad leaves Nigeria in his early 20s to come to America and be a missionary, to be a pastor. While in America, working literally at Taco Bell, an odd job, he gets his degree. Then he gets his PhD in psychology. And then he opens up his own private practice. And my favorite thing for me about my father is I recall he only missed one football game in my high school and college career. And Darren, the reason I know he only missed one football game is because he only missed one football game. And so I recall him just being present and sacrificing for his family. And, and I tried to live that out in my life, sacrificing for society. I mean, my dad had no reason to go back to Nigeria, had no reason to start this medical mission trip team that would perform over $2.2 million in free medical care. So, Donnie, I, I've garnered so many things from my dad and so many similarities. And that's probably why we butt heads a lot because we're so much alike. But that's really taught me the lessons I know to help me navigate the crazy culture we live in today. Yeah, you're, you're uh, all about teaching your life lessons and you're full of one-liners and quotes. I've been following you for a while and um, you got a lot of them. Uh, one of them I wanted to talk about, Dar well, Darren kind of worked this into your intro about this man cannot be put in a box because I've heard you say that your biggest fear is to be put in the box. How has, we always talk about how fear can either freeze us or fuel us. And it sounds like that fear of being put in, put in a box has absolutely fueled you into like massive action more than most would take. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? Man, I think the, the greatest, probably my greatest fear in life would be not maximizing my potential. 
like we're all here for a limited amount of time. Darren, I know as an, as an athlete, you were clearly have maximized and continue to maximize your potential. Donnie, as I looked and looked into your story prior to this conversation, seeing what you have done in impacting people in your life, dude, we are here for a limited amount of time. And I think we all have a unique skill set. We all are uniquely gifted to be great at something. So the second I found my unique gift being a communicator, oh, it was put on the gas. Because if I try to be like Darren, then I'm never going to be the best version of me. So when I was in the National Football League, and I was like, man, I ain't going to be a Hall of all pro. I'm not going to be a Hall of Famer. I'm not going to be a pro bowler. It's time to pivot. And once I pivoted and got into television, that's when I realized, oh, I'm uniquely gifted at this. And so the fear of not being the world changer that I know I'm capable of being, that's what drives me to continue to do, to continue to create, to continue to ideate. I'm always trying to figure out what's the next best and next greatest thing. I, lo I love that, maximizing your fullest potential. And I feel like there's a lot of guys like me and yourself that have spent time in the NFL and they may reach a point where their career ends and they feel like that's the only potential they yeah. may have. What were some of the, the mental battles, the mental hurdles that you can speak to? Because I know a lot of guys face those when they transition out. Man, first off, let's talk about the league. I was cut five times by the age of 25. So let's not get it twisted. Like I didn't have this glamorous NFL story. The Philadelphia By the same Eagles, team, I mean, right? Same team, bro. Same team. <laughs> they, I, they just ain't get tired of it. They was like, you know what? We'll, we'll cut him today. Then we'll cut him again tomorrow. No, nah, man, the Philadelphia Eagles cut me five times by the age of 25. I was traded at the age of 22, and obviously I was drafted at the age of 21. So my NFL career was crazy. I get drafted to the Cleveland Browns. I tear my MCL in preseason game two against the Green Bay Packers. I'm, 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 I'm playing a stretch outside zone run. I try to play off a cut block. The dude gets into my knee. I tear my MCL. Finally, I've rehabbed at the end of the season. The athletic trainer, he comes up to me. Hey, Acho, uh, general manager wants to see you. I, I don't know nothing about nothing. I'm a second-year player at the time. I get that handshake and that pat on the back, kind of nice knowing you. Next thing you know, I'm in the coach's office. Coach tells me, you know, hey, Emmanuel, um, want to trade you to the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm trying not to laugh because I'm like, yo, I get to get out of Cleveland? That's a dream. So I end up going to Philly. I'm in Philly. Man, I get cut five months later. Then they re-sign me. I get cut in the middle of that season. Then they re-sign me. I get cut at the end of the next season. Then I break my thumb. They cut me then. Then they sign me back on my birthday. Then I get cut again three weeks later. So, Darren, before I even got out of the league, being in the league was as chaotic as could possibly be. But what I always remembered, and I went to the rookie symposium. I don't remember if you, if, if you went to the rookie symposium, bro, but if you do, you can attest to this. They said NFL players, their salary, it does this. It starts super high and it goes down over the course of their life. A doctor, their salary, it does this. It starts low and it goes up over the course of their life. And at about 35 years of age is where they intersect. The doctor surpasses the NFL athlete. I vividly remember hearing that at 21 years old at the rookie symposium. And I said, nah, that won't be me. I'm gonna do this. 
I'm going to jump out of the NFL when I start to see my career decline and I'm going to jump into another industry. And so that was what I did. But here's a true story. When I was in Austin, Texas in 2016, after four years in the NFL, I emailed every single news director in Austin. And I said, hey, I would love to come on television after a Texas Longhorn game and just add my expertise. One news station, Fox 7 Austin, they responded. And that is how I got into television. So nobody handed me nothing. Nobody was like, oh, we'll just throw you a job. I just cold emailed everybody. And one person bit. I got into Fox 7 Austin. I got in the Longhorn Network, a subsidiary. And while, while I was trying to figure out my life, I was like, look, closed mouths don't get fed. And so I said, let me open up my mouth and start shooting out some emails. And it all worked out. I want to ask you, as you were getting your reps in uh, early on in your media career, um, can you tell us what it was like in when the seed was planted in your mind to create the uncomfortable conversations platform, because I think it's brilliant. You know, me and Donnie, um, we love having meaningful conversations and conversations like these to where, you know, you and talk about things that have happened to you talk about times where you may have failed. Like when did that idea begin to take place in your mind and how did you and the people that supported you help make that come about? It's a great question, man. Um, May 2020 was one of the most chaotic months in the history of my life on this earth. May 2020 would be when George Floyd was murdered. I was living in Austin, Texas. I was only a sports analyst at the time, at the time for ESPN, currently obviously for Fox Sports. After the murder of George Floyd, everybody was trying to figure out what to do. Right. Do do I go march? Do I pay an assign? Do I protest? Do I post a black square on Instagram? What do you do? I'm sitting in Austin and I was like, what in the world can I do? OK, so many of my loving friends that aren't of color are well intended, but they're poorly executed. So at a minimum, the first step to progress in life is education of all sorts. The first step to progress of anything is education. So I said, let me have a educated conversation. True story, I was going to name it Questions White People Have because my white friends had questions. Terrible title. So <laughs> as I'm sitting there in Austin just stewing, trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? I called a dear white friend of mine and, she, and, and I said, you know what? No, she said, you know what, Emmanuel? It's not just white people that have questions. Why don't you name it Uncomfortable Conversations? said, I was missing something. It's missing something. I don't like that title. True story, Dan. I, I finished a bike ride. I went back into my house in Austin. I was staying in a two-story townhouse. I walked by the bathroom. I walked back by. I look in the, the mirror and I said, wait a second. You're a black man. Uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Now, here was the dilemma. I don't know nothing about shooting nothing. I don't know nothing about recording nothing. I've always had producers. I've always had executive producers, cameramen, everything. So I, I texted my designer and I said, she also designed weddings. I said, yo, you got a videographer? She said, I got a wedding videographer. I said, great, give me his number. I texted my other friend, best friend, an Olympic uh, gold medalist at the 2016 Rio Olympics. I said, hey, can you find me a studio to, to, to shoot something in? She said, okay, why? Just do it. I get a wedding videographer. I get a studio in Austin, all of which I pay for, mind you. I don't know what's about to happen, but I say, yo, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to get some thoughts off my chest. Now, here's what people don't realize. 
The first episode, Darren, was supposed to be me and a dear white friend of mine, similar to how you and Donnie are having a beautiful conversation right now. But an hour before the conversation, my white friend was like, hey, I can't do this. They don't want to see me. They want to see you. This isn't right. She had a change of heart at the last minute. So now I'm thinking to myself, bro, we practiced you and I. You ask the questions, I answer. Donnie, it's uncomfortable conversations with a black man, not uncomfortable monologue with a black man. So why in the world am I sitting in a chair by myself for the first episode? Because at the last second, my dear friend bailed on me. Um, so Darren, true story, it was me in a room with a wedding videographer and his wife, my best friend and Olympic gold medalist, myself, the owner of the studio, and the friend that bailed on me ended up sitting in. It was a all-white room in Austin, Texas that I paid for, a videographer that I hired. I had no idea that this nine minute and 17 second monologue would change my life. And um, I spoke from the heart and somehow the world listened and it ushered me into a space um, that I didn't know I would be in. And since then, um, I just continue to move as, as my heart speaks. It's powerful, man, to lean into that to, uh, you know, that's a very easy uh, situation to let fear allow you to play small and to lean in and to watch what's happened I can't believe it's just been a, a few years and where your career has gone since then. I, I've heard you talk about, and I love this around goal setting, and I wanted to bring it up because you might have to even backtrack into your college combine junior year, senior year story to set that up. But I just think it's really important for, for our listeners and whoever might be listening to understand the concept that you have around goal setting and maybe not setting goals. Darren, you believe in setting goals? Actually, I don't. And I feel like I was honestly uncomfortable in the fact that I didn't, especially in the industry that, you know, you spend time in and I, and I am still currently in. I feel like if I don't have goals and say, I'm gonna get this many catches, this many yards, then I'm like, I don't have a vision. But uh, I, I, I don't set goals. And I've always felt like an alien for not doing it. You are not an alien. And if you are, I am occupying the same planet that you occupy, <laughs> sir. I, um, I think goals are dumb. I wrote about it in my book, Illogical. I think that goals are dumb. I think the surest way to fail in life is to set a goal. Okay, Acho, that sounds ridiculous. Well, think about it. Anything that we have failed at in life, relationally, man, I wanted to be married by 25. Uh, familially, man, I wanted to have at least two kids by 30. Occupationally, man, I was trying to make $200,000 by the time I hit 28. Spiritually, ah, I wanted to attend church, mass, synagogue every week. Anything we feel like we failed in life, it was tethered to a goal. The only way to fail in life, in all honesty, is to set a goal. Without goals, there is no failure. Here is what I submit. Donnie, I've talked about this before. If you set a goal, at best, you'll achieve it. But what if you could have achieved more? If you set a goal and you fail, well, now you've ruined your self-esteem and you've ruined your self-efficacy, how you think you could have achieved a task, your confidence and your ability. 2011, I wanted to declare for the NFL draft. I had just finished my junior year at Texas. We went to the national championship in 2010. 2011, I had started. Like, we was balling. I was like, yo, I'm done with this college stuff. I'm good. My brother was going to the league. I wanted to go to the league. So I set a goal. I set a goal my senior year. I said, you know what? Forget it. I'll come back my senior year because I want to be drafted in the first three rounds, right? I went to Texas, played in the ship. Like, I want to be drafted in the first three rounds. 
Problem. At the NFL Combine, I'm running a 40-yard dash. D-Wall, you know what it is. I'm trying to make a couple extra million dollars. I'm running a 40-yard dash. As I'm running, I hear boom, boom, boom. I thought my heels were clicking, but my quad was being torn off the bone. So I kept running. Boom, boom, boom. I grasp my quad and I fall to the ground 30 meters in. I get carried off the sideline. I got drafted in the sixth round. Devastated. But why was I devastated? Only 260 or so players get drafted out of roughly 1.7 or so million high school football players. And I'm devastated that I got drafted in the sixth round. So, Donnie, why in the world was I devastated? Because I set a goal. So rather than celebrating this accomplishment, more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to play in the National Football League when you think about the statistics, rather than celebrating this accomplishment, I'm mourning the failure of a goal. So goals in my mind are dumb. They are limiting. I believe that goals do more damage than good. Now, I did get my master's degree in sports psychology. I committed my final thesis paper to goal setting. So I understand the needs of goal setting. I understand the feedback in goal setting. I understand you have to achieve flow. That is an operative desire in people's life. But when you really kick back and think about it, what's goal setting ever done for you? Because I could submit that goal setting does a lot more damage than it does good. And so what is it? It's objective without limitations? Is that more of what? And, and when you said that, it made me think of as, as a yoga teacher, I teach meditation, we would call it maybe your intention. So maybe mm -hmm. would an objective be similar to your intention, like the, the intention that you're setting and then redirecting your energy towards the intention and then the intention or the objective pulls you forward? Great question. James Clear writes in his book, Atomic Habits, focus more on systems than outcomes. So I say instead of setting a goal set and objective with no limitations, I tell that semantics, goal, objective, same thing. No, no, no. Small difference in wording will have a huge impact in your life. A goal, it is an end towards which energy is aimed. An objective is defined as energy aimed in a direction. Why in the world would I start something in my life with the end in mind? <laughs> what? Like, why, why, why would I start something giving myself a limitation? And when James Clear references focus on, on systems, not on outcomes, he's saying, yo, focus on the process. Don't focus on the end. If you focus on the process, then you will look back and see how much further you've gotten. Uh, Walter, when I got out the league, everybody was like, yo, you want to be like Strahan? You trying to be the next Strahan? I was like, no, because if I try to be the next Strahan, then I might just be the next Strahan. But I could be the next me. You know, and Strahan's already taken. He's doing a wonderful job being Michael Strahan. So why would I want to try to be the next Strahan when I could be the next Acho? You feel me? And so if you, if you set a goal, you might just achieve it. And that's the problem. So true. I mean, Darren and I have talked a lot about this with just objectives or goals and talking, even in, in performance, when we're talking statistics, like you don't have control over those statistics. You don't know how many balls are gonna be thrown your way. So to set a goal on something you don't have control over, you're right, and then it doesn't allow you to be in the process. So if you're so attached to the goal and you get the goal, it's like, now what? Or you don't get the goal and then you're a failure. So I love how you're explaining it. And um, man, I'm, I'm vibing with everything you're saying right now. It's just, to me, Donnie, it's just not worth it. Now, here, here's what's crazy. Most people will listen to that and be like, I don't even want to adhere. This is, this is crazy. Yeah, why, why not just set smaller goals and then hit them and set other smaller goals and then hit them? 
I, I try to think of it like an archer. If you are an archer, the only way that an archer su- succeeds is if they hit the, 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 the bullseye or any one of the small targets. But if you want to make mass impact rather than being an archer, um, you I would rather drop something that makes more mass impact. Like, and, and when I think about objectives, I don't want to be an archer. I don't want the only way I can win is if I have, you know, 95 catches and 1,100 yards. So if you don't do that, your 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 season was a failure. Like make that make sense. Think about it in football. Everybody has a goal of winning the Super Bowl. So if you don't win the Super Bowl, then everything else you did that season was for naught. Like that that that's bad math. That's just bad math. And that's what we do in life. Oof, man, that is uh, that that's that's huge. You know, because I um, going into my 2019, 2020 seasons for me, I didn't set any of. I didn't have the, that mindset going in. Those were my first years really being a starter. And I was like, you know, if I take advantage of running one route to the best of my ability and turn that into a practice, turn that into a week of practice, turn that into uh, a game on Sunday and then let those things stack, that's where the results started to come. And, you know, these past couple seasons where I haven't been as healthy, you know, I've been battling in my mind of like, oh, man, I didn't reach those markers. I didn't reach those results, the things that people love me for. Um, so in a way, like, I feel like I failed or I'm not living up to my truest potential. And it's like, I, I don't know, man, it's, it, it's tough to, to battle, but I want to ask you, you know, the, the you take and the energy that you embody, I'm sure it may make certain people uncomfortable because you're willing to have uncomfortable conversations. How do you go about not, um, people pleasing and trying to fit in or fit an image of what people want from you? Man, I think about this quote, um, you can either please all people some of the time or some people all at a time. You ain't going to please everybody. You know what I mean? And I think the only way to avoid criticism is to say nothing, is to do nothing, and it is to be nothing. And so if you want to avoid criticism, then you quite literally have to cease to exist. And um, criticism is a cost of praise. So I don't really worry so much about people pleasing. Like I put out a message based on revelation. I don't put out a message for response. So when something's revealed to me, then I put out that message. Now, it gets me in trouble sometimes. Other times people, uh, they respect it. But you know, I put out messages based on revelation. And so at the point in which it was revealed to me to start in comfortable conversations with a black man, I put that out. If a sports take or a sports ideology is revealed to me, I put that out. So, I, I, bro, I speak from revelation. I don't speak for response. Um, but in society, so many people just want to speak for some retweets. And I think that's a dangerous, dangerous place. Tell us about the, the words that were spoken to you of uh, you have the thing. Man, um, my life has been crazy the last three years. So three years ago, really two and a half, I got a call. It's a no caller ID number. I don't recommend picking up no caller ID numbers, but I got this call. I picked up. Hi, Emmanuel. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey speaking. Say, Oprah? Like Oprah, Oprah? She's like, yeah, are you free later today? I'm like, am I free? <laughs> are you free? You the, you the billionaire. Um, so I, 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 I hop on this call with Oprah. <laughs> 
And she asked me one question. She says, Emmanuel, what is your intention? D. Wall, this is the question I ask anybody before I ever do an interview with them. If I am the host, I say, hey, what's your intention? And she, I, she, Oprah says, Emmanuel, what is your intention? I say, Oprah, my intention is to change the world, and I truly believe I can. I'm currently working on writing a book. She says, books? I love books. Um, so we partnered together to write Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man and with a Black Boy, like Darren said in the introduction, a number one New York Times bestseller and a number three New York Times bestseller. Cut two. A month later, I'm doing a conversation with Oprah. The Oprah conversation meets Uncomfortable Conversations. It's for Apple TV. I'm sitting in a room in the middle of the pandemic by myself. I have 10 iPads in front of me and one, call it 100 screen inch monitor ahead of me. Oprah's on the 100 screen TV and the 10 iPads are populated by random faces from people across the country. The face would populate and they would ask me a question. I'm not prepared for it. They would ask me a question. Oprah would take the question that they asked. She would ask it to me. I would answer. Next face would populate. They would say the question. Oprah would repeat the question. I would answer. Next face would populate. They would say the question. Oprah would repeat the question. I would answer. At the end of that two and a half hour conversation, Oprah was going to turn it into a TV show. True story. Finally, it's all over. I'm exhausted. Donnie, it's my first time communicating with Oprah in front of people. Waller, it's my first time communicating with Oprah in front of people. Again, for those of you who are at home, this is Oprah, a speaking icon. I'm sitting in my dressing room after this. I am gassed. Mind you, Oprah was not in the same room as me. It was during the pandemic. Oprah's right-hand woman who was present, she walks up to me. Hey, Emmanuel, great job, but um, I think Oprah's trying to call you. I start patting, patting for my phone. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I call her back at this point in time. I have Oprah's number. I call her back. All she says is this. You have the thing, my friend. You have the thing. And coming from someone who had the thing and has the thing, you, my friend, you have the thing. I say, well, what in the world is the thing? She was like, you have the specific gift to speak hard truths to people and they still want to listen to you. This goes back full circle, Darren, to the conversation we started having, dying to the conversation we started. Everybody has a unique gift. Oprah was telling me like, yo, your gift is in communication. You have the thing. And from that day forward, I was now empowered to navigate life, realizing I have been anointed by one of the greatest orators of our world um, and that, Donnie, truly allowed me to move in confidence, realizing like, oh, if Oprah says I got the thing, I don't really care what this tr Twitter troll got to say, because like she already told me I got the thing. You know what I mean? I have a question in, in response to that. I know there's people that are listening that they find themselves in tough situations in their lives or just um, lost as far as what their purpose is, what they bring to the table. And they may not have somebody validating them in the way that you have. What would you say to them as far as um, trying to find confidence and maybe in the midst of their uncertainty? I love this question. I got asked this question two years ago. I haven't been asked it since. So the part of the story I left out before Oprah called me, I got one more no caller ID call. Five days after the first episode of No Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, I got a call from a no-call ID number before Oprah. I picked that one up. Acho, McConaughey speaking. I want to have a conversation. Like, uh, McConaughey? Like, Matthew McConaughey? My voice gets high when I talk to famous people. McConaughey? Matthew? Um, so he says, I want to have a conversation. He says, um, I want to do one of your episodes. I was like, 
right, let's do it in about three, four days. Waller, my first episode, I told you, it was with a wedding videographer. It was with a studio I rented in Austin. And it was my friend who's an Olympic gold medalist. I don't know what I'm doing, but y'all didn't know that. Y'all thought this was a high quality product. It wasn't. It was just a bunch of dudes in Austin and dudettes in Austin chilling. And so when McConaughey calls, I'm scrambling. I'm like, yo, this is an Academy Award winner. What in the world am I going to do? McConaughey says, let's do it tomorrow. Oh, okay, we'll do it tomorrow. I start scrambling. I call the owner of the studio. I say, hell, McConaughey just called me. He wants to record. Can I get in your studio? She says, Acho, I have a problem. I said, what's the problem? The studio is painted all blue. It takes 24 hours to paint and 24 hours to dry. Anybody that's ever seen my episode, it's in an all-white room. I can't do a freaking episode in an all-blue studio. How would that look on camera? She said, I have an idea. She drives around town. She buys a big white sheet of paper, and she puts it in the studio. I don't tell McConaughey this. I'm like, I ain't going to let him cancel. He shows up. He's in this all-blue room with a white sheet of paper, and we cheat the camera so it looks like we were in an all-white room. Why in the world did I tell that story? To answer the question uh, that, that Darren asked about, okay, all right. What about people that are trying to figure out, you know, what their, 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 their calling is in life? Your calling will call you. Just pick up. Your calling will call you. You just got to pick it up. See, my calling literally called me in the form of Matthew McConaughey, in the form of Oprah Winfrey. But your calling will figuratively call you, meaning what are you inherently gifted at? Are you an inherently gifted listener, an inherently gifted lover, an inherently gifted leader? What are you inherently skilled at? Are you inherently empathetic? Are you inherently sympathetic? Are you inherently type A? Your calling will call you. All you have to do is pick up. The issue in life is not that people aren't called. The issue is that people don't pick up the call. If I don't ever pick up that no caller ID call from Matthew McConaughey, you and I aren't having this conversation. If I don't pick up that no caller ID call from Oprah, we're not talking right now. Or if McConaughey calls me and I'm too scared to sit in the room with an Academy Award winner, I'm not sitting here talking to these listeners and to these viewers. Your calling will call you. You just got to pick it up. And so I say that and I also say your calling is your calling. It ain't a conference call. Bro, when I was going to do uncomfortable conversations, I got a text from a friend of mine and they said, hey, don't do that um, uncomfortable conversations thing. It's not our job to educate white people. White people didn't help us assimilate into their culture. Why should we help them assimilate into ours? I was like, yo, I feel you. I feel you to each their own. But I was like, this was a calling put on my heart. So I have to act with it. Your calling is your calling. It's not a conference call. So the wall, I don't think it's that people lack the skill. I think it's that people lack the will. Because everybody has a gift, they just got to use it. We gotta, we gotta honor your voice and honor your time. Um, there's a lot of juice here. There's more, more to get into. Maybe on another episode. We know you gotta, you gotta run and you gotta um, protect that voice right now. But thank you, man. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for Darren and I. Love to have meaningful conversations, and it, it doesn't get more meaningful than that, meaningful than this. So thank you for your time. Appreciate y'all. Waller, pleasure to finally rap at you, Donnie. Y'all keep doing it, man. Y'all keep leading in society. Yes, sir, man. Appreciate you picking up the call, brother. It's been an honor to talk to you.